Do you ever just wonder why people do what they do? I mean, why people post on social media what they post? Do you ever just wonder why people mutter things under their breath? Do you ever just wonder why she said that, why he tweeted that, why they just continue to fall into this pattern? Anybody? Show of hands? Yeah, we all. I, I, I often find myself wondering this about others, but if I'm really, really honest, I wonder it about myself. Why do I do what I do? Why do I think what I think? Why sometimes do I get frustrated and angry? Why do I find myself just getting so insecure at times? Why do I do what I do? And if you're familiar with the scriptures, you know that Paul, the man who wrote the majority of the New Testament, wrestled with this as well. In Romans chapter 7, verse 15, he says two sentences that I think every human has felt. The first sentence is this, I do not understand what I do, which doesn't really work when your wife is saying something, you can't just quote that scripture. <laughs> Babe, I do not understand what I do. It does not seem to work. But then he says this line, for what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And I've wrestled with this for 20 plus years. I've had the privilege to pastor. And there are a few pastors on the planet like your pastor. Your pastor Dan Meyer, he has been so good to me. At times when it felt like outside of my control, the world was just shaking and crumbling. He drove from Oak Brook all the way up to South Barrington to sit with me over breakfast and just pastored me. And he asked me great questions. You have an incredible pastor. When he reached out for me to come speak, I, I was like, I have to. It's a small token just to say thank you for the ways that you have ministered to me. Not every church has the kind of pastor that you have, but he is as good, his integrity, his character, his faith in Jesus. It's as strong as I've ever seen. Grateful for him. But I find myself still wrestling. Why do people do what they do? And so what I want to do today is I want to help you understand this. After 20 years of pastoring, I want to help you be able to understand yourself a little bit better. Why you do what you do. To do that, we're going to look at an old passage of Scripture from the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, from the book of Esther, chapter 3. But we're not going to work our way down starting in verse 1. We're actually going to attack this passage backwards. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to Esther chapter 3. If you have a small black Bible, then it's going to be page 399. If you don't have a small black Bible, I can't help you. I'm sorry, but we're going to start in verse 15. It says this, the king, and that was a man by the name of Xerxes, the most powerful man in the land, and his right-hand man, Haman, sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was bewildered. It's really interesting. The king and his right-hand man, they sit down to drink. I don't, I don't, I'm not sure what they're drinking. 
It doesn't say in the scriptures, it could be tea, it could be coffee, it could be wine. I have no idea, but somehow they are in a relaxed position seated together and the entire city is bewildered. Now the word bewildered in Hebrew is the word book. And book literally means to wander around aimlessly wondering what is going on. Do you ever just have that moment in the kitchen? Thinking about what your kids just did? Your grandkids? Maybe turn on the news and you're like, what is going on? And, and this is what the entire city is. We all know what this is like. For some of us, we've sat down with our spouse and we're just like bewildered by what our boss did at work. Or bewildered by what a friend or relative posted on social media. Or bewildered by the state of affairs in our world today. And if we're really, really honest, there's sometimes that our kids are upstairs. And you and your spouse are seated late at night for a drink and they're bewildered by your choices. The question is, why was the city of Susa so bewildered? I'll tell you. Back to the scriptures, verse 13. It says this, dispatches were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with the order to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children, on a single day, the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. So the question is, why is the city of Susa bewildered? Because a massive genocide has been decreed throughout all of King Xerxes' control. Now, I, I don't know if you've ever seen the effects of a genocide. I was 19 years old, and I found myself in Kigali, Rwanda, few years after a massive genocide where two tribes in less than a hundred days killed the UN reports between 800,000 and 1 million people. The same country, just two different tribes. And you'll be walking around Kilgali and you'll see people missing limbs. I went into a church where one tribe went to hide and the other tribe found out that there were thousands of people hiding in a church. And it became a graveyard. The effects of a genocide. The effects of sin in the world. The effects. And this is what has been decreed and the entire city is going, what is going on? Which begs the question, how do you pull off a genocide? Like what, what, would, what would actually have to happen for a genocide to take place in the ancient Near East? I'll tell you. Turn with me to verse 8 and 9. It says this, Then Haman, remember he's the right-hand man of the king, said to King Xerxes, There is a certain people among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom who keep themselves separate. Their customs are different from those of all other people, and they do not obey the king's laws. 
It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. And then look what he says. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them. And I will give 10,000 talents of silver to the king's administrators for the royal treasury. So the right-hand man begins to share this story about a group of people. And it's like, hey, this group of people, they do things differently. And you don't need to tolerate that. We need to actually wipe them out. And, 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 and it's for your benefit. And I'm actually going to bankroll it. I'm actually going to put my own money down. I don't want this to be a cause to you, a struggle to you at all. I'll take care of it. But look what the king responds. He says these words. Keep the money and do with the people as you please. And so a genocide gets decreed. We'll come back to this story in a moment, but I live in Arizona right now. But for many, many years, I lived in the Chicagoland area, go Cubs. And I, I love Chicago. I grew up in Southern California. I, I've had the privilege to experience some unique places, but there's no place I love more than Chicagoland. I love Big Ten country. I love just the values. I love the people. I love the energy. I love the hospitality. But there's one thing, one thing that I cannot stand about Illinois. It's construction cones. Because you know it's springtime when those orange cones and orange barrels are in full bloom. They are everywhere. And you know why they're everywhere? And growing up in California, we didn't have this. But I remember driving into the city of Chicago, and I kept just hitting these craters, these massive craters that you all call potholes. And they're everywhere. Now, what's amazing, and you all probably know this, but you can be driving like I was a few years ago, and I hit a pothole, and right away I knew I got a flat tire. I pulled the car over, and I had learned that if you dial 311, you can report a pothole. And if the pothole has been reported to the city of Chicago and they have not fixed it in the right amount of time, they will literally repair the damages for your vehicle. No wonder the city of Chicago is going bankrupt. Sorry, that's a different sermon. But what I need you to understand though, I pull the car over, I know that I got a flat, and I start praying, God, clerical error. I pray that like somehow it's been time they'll pay for the damage to my car. So I dial 311, woman picks up. We start having a conversation. She's like, I'm so sorry. She's very, very sweet, very, very kind. She's like, I'm so sorry. This has actually uh, not been reported. You're the first one. Then it starts dawning on me. You have your own phone number for potholes. How many potholes do you literally fill in to get your own number? And the woman's like, it's fascinating. It's fascinating. Great question. Did you know that the, the Chicago Tribune just did a story? And I was like, okay, tell me more. She goes, you know how many potholes we filled in from January 1st, 2018 to March 21st, 2018? I said, no. She said, take a guess. I said, you seem to know the answer. This is what my dad would always do. He'd ask me a question where he already knew the answer. We're just wasting time, ma'am. 
She said, just take a guess. I say 25,000. She says a little bit more. I say 35,000. She says a little bit more. I say 45,000. She goes a little bit more. I said, ma'am, just please tell me the answer. She says, in a less than 100 days, we have filled in 108,000 potholes. I promise you, if you go to the city of Chicago's website, they literally have a pothole tracker where they show their work. Now, here's what happens if you've ever seen this. You will have these city employees that walk up. They're doing incredible work. They'll see this crater that they're trying to protect all of our tires from, and they'll walk up to it, they'll inspect it, and they'll realize, oh, this was just caused by inclement weather. Water froze, it expanded, the asphalt couldn't handle it, so what do they do? They take some asphalt, they cover it in, they go to the pothole tracker, fill in a circle, and they got 107,999 more to go. But sometimes, sometimes they come up to a pothole and they recognize this was not caused by inclement weather. It's actually something happening underneath the surface. And they begin to inspect it and they realize, oh, there must be some sense of erosion from some kind of leaky, maybe sewage pipe or other pipe. There's something happening underneath the surface. And if they do not handle that correctly, a pothole will quickly become a sinkhole. And this happened in the city of Chicago, 2016, 72-year-old man was driving, had the ride of his life when all of a sudden the entire road gave out and he fell down two stories in his vehicle. Thanks be to God, he was okay, but here's what I need you to understand. Every one of us watching online, every one of us in Butterfield, every one of us here on the Oak Brook campus we all have potholes. And the potholes have come because of trauma in our life. The potholes have come because of pain in our story. The potholes have come because of what people have said or done to us. The potholes have come because of our own choices and our own running away from God and sin. And the problem is, is that for many of us, as we are human with a whole bunch of potholes, People sometimes drive really close and they hit one of our potholes. You've experienced this in your neighborhood. You've experienced this in the marketplace. You've experienced this online. And what I've come to realize from pastoring people for 20 plus years is that when people find themselves getting frustrated, getting triggered, that if they don't actually learn how to deal with it, that pothole will quickly become a sinkhole that won't just affect you, but it will affect your family. It'll affect your integrity. It'll affect your character. It'll affect all of those around you. And here's what I need you to understand. The right-hand man of the king, a genocide just doesn't get decreed. Something happened. Something happened where Haman, the right-hand man to the king, gets triggered, where someone gets close to a pothole of his, and he literally loses his mind. Watch this. Verse 2 says this. 
all the kings, all the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman for the king had commanded this concerning him. But look what it says. But Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor. Mordecai is a new character in the story. Mordecai is a Jewish man. And because Haman is the right-hand man of the king, wherever he goes, people would kneel down. I mean, this, this would be like if everywhere I was walking, all of you had to get down on your knees. And Mordecai sees the right-hand man of the king walking, and he's like, no, I'm not doing it. I'm not going to do it. And it happens day after day where Mordecai will not bow down to anyone but God. But look what it says, verse 5. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. So, just for clarity's sake, do you see what's happening here? Mordecai doesn't kneel down, and because Mordecai doesn't kneel down, Haman gets so triggered that he goes, I don't just want to kill you. I want to kill all your people. Now, please, please hear me. I don't think anybody in the Christchurch, Oakbrook, or Butterfield family would ever, ever get so enraged that they would want to actually lead a genocide. But I will say this. To be human is to have potholes. And for many of us, these potholes, people get close to them. And they start to poke. And they start to actually do stuff and it enrages us. It makes us sad or it makes us disappointed. And all of a sudden, for many of us, we find ourselves escaping and going to places other than God. Going back to that Romans passage, I don't think that we can say anymore, I do not understand why I do. I do not understand why I do what I do, why I say what I say, why I tweet what I tweet, why I think what I think. I do not understand. Because the stakes are higher than ever, whether you are in your 30s or your 80s. And it requires every single one of us who has Christ at the center to begin to do the work to understand why we do what we do. And so I want to help you. I want to help you learn from what I have discovered from pastoring people because nobody just randomly just does what they want to do. It all comes from somewhere. And it's what I refer to as the thing beneath the thing. We've got to be able to understand what is happening underneath the surface that is causing us to behave. And if we can't do this, a little minor pothole will become a sinkhole that will have massive ramifications, not just for us, but for everyone around us. So thing is an acronym. The first letter T is the word triggers. Triggers. And this is what we saw in Esther 3. Haman gets triggered, right? And when he gets triggered because someone doesn't bow down, doesn't show him the honor he thinks he's due because of this, he gets enraged. And the truth is, every one of us get triggered. I'm just driving 
down the 90 to the 290 to the 294. You have people, just a couple people driving too slow, some guy cutting me off, and you're just like, all of a sudden, like, you didn't see my car? And like, I can start to think thoughts that I don't want to think. Or you can have this when you're online and you see what someone posts and you're like, what were they thinking? And if we don't have that self-control, some of us are just then responding. And the simplest definition for me to understand triggers is it's the setup that sets us off. Your day is going in a certain direction and then somehow someone gets close to one of your potholes and it sets you off. And there is all of this negative energy going through your body. And the truth is, that negative energy comes from somewhere. A number of years ago, I came home and I wanted to share honestly with my wife that there was someone on our team that whenever I was sharing in a meeting, they would minimize an idea and it reminded me of someone who had deeply wounded me. And if I'm really, really honest, I just was looking for some spousal support. I was looking for her to be frustrated with me. And you know what she said? She said to me after I share, I feel articulating what actually happened. You know what she says to me? Isn't God so kind? God so kind? What do you mean God's so kind? That guy was being really, really rude. Why is God so kind? You know what she says? God's so kind that he keeps bringing people into your life who remind you of someone who has deeply wounded you. And until you have the courageous curiosity to understand that, your life will continue to be held in check and you will continue to choose something, whether out of feeling or something to escape, rather than choosing God. And I was even more mad after she dropped that truth bomb on me. <laughs> but it's right. Why you do what you do? Because whenever you get triggered, it's the setup that sets you off and it's connected to some pain, some trauma, some experience. And if you don't get curious about that, it's going to go somewhere. And I've come to realize there are four places when we get triggered that most people go. And the first place is hideouts. And this is like Genesis 3. We see this. A man and a woman are in the garden. God has instructed them. Whatever you want to do, just do not eat from this tree. But there's that crafty serpent. And that crafty serpent's like, hey, God knows if you actually eat of this, you're going to be like God. If you actually taste this, he doesn't want you to be like him. He's holding out on you. And so the woman, when she saw that the fruit was pleasing to the eye and desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate. She saw her husband. It was like, Here's some food. And he's like, free food? I'll eat. And so he eats. And all of a sudden, just with that one experience, they find themselves being overwhelmed with such shame and anxiety. And they start to try and cover themselves up. And then the scripture says that they hear God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And so what do the man and the woman do? They go and hide. It's the first game of hide and seek ever. And God begins to search and seek out, and he just asks the simple question, where are you? And he's not asking, where's your GPS location? 
He's asking the simple question, where is the fullest expression of the man and the woman I created? Where is my image that I put in you on display for the rest of the world to see? And for many of us, when we get triggered, we chase a hideout. And a hideout is a metaphorical place we go to escape the pain or the sadness or the trauma of our story. And for many of us, we have socially acceptable hideouts. We can eat. We can just binge watch a TV show. We can just tune out and watch news again and again or watch sports. Socially acceptable. You know, Jeff Bezos with Amazon, he understands that you are going to be triggered multiple times a day. This is why Amazon created the one-click button. Because they know when you get triggered, you're just going to go online and go, yep, I'm going to buy another lawn gnome. I don't know why I'm buying a lawn gnome, but by the time you realize why you're buying a lawn gnome, it's already been delivered at your house. <laughs> but we make decisions when we get triggered. We, we go to try and soothe and this is what we do when we go to these hideouts. We are taking all of the anxiety or sadness or shame and we are placing it onto something. Food, drinking, buying stuff. And we're placing it onto that and we're literally going, take care of me. And the truth is, all of these activities will give you a fleeting sense of peace, but promise you this, it will not make you a person of peace. I mean, Chase Bank, they know this. You know what they call their credit card? The freedom card. Credit cards don't lead you to freedom. But here's what they understand. If we can market it like this, and when you get triggered, then hey, let us give you freedom. And so what do most people do? Swipe, 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 swipe more and more and more into slavery. See, many of us, we have hideouts, socially acceptable and then obviously socially unacceptable. And in the midst of COVID, we watched alcohol sales, opioid sales, pornography, all of this stuff skyrocket in our day. Because we didn't know how to handle uncertainty. We didn't know how to handle the realities of what was happening in our world. And we were being triggered on Twitter, triggered on Facebook. Or if you want to know what's even crazier than all of that, the Nextdoor app. Because people are like, this is where I live and this is what I think about Sally who lives next door to me. You're like, this is crazy. But we have these triggers and it's going to take us somewhere. The second place that triggers will take us First one, hideout. Second, insecurities. And when we get triggered, many of you understand this. All of a sudden, you start to create false stories about yourself. I just always mess up. I'll never be good enough. I don't have what it takes. Or the old tapes of some former kind of teacher or parent 
some person that had authority in our life that just spoke a lie over us, in the moments of being triggered, the lies of the enemy begin to play again and again and again and again and again to the point where I watch this as a pastor that many people find themselves just powering down. Shoulders in. Filled with insecurity. Not actually believing that God put his image within you, that God made you for a purpose, that God has something incredible for you. It's like the lies of the enemy have are just overwhelming and some people just start to power down. But I also have seen an insecurity when people are losing control. Losing control of a conversation, losing control of a meeting, losing control of a situation. Instead of powering down, what do they do? They power up. And they try and put people on their heels. And for some of us as children of alcoholics, we learned how to dance around the chaos and we learned how to kind of watch what was happening in the room. And we could watch how someone would just become violent just like that. And not just violent with their fists, but even violent with their words. And you would just see them powering up. Something triggered them and they powered up. And friends, you could step back and it's just insecurity. I look at it now and I go, oh, oh, buddy, you just didn't do your work. See, for many of us, when we get triggered, we're going to go to a hideout or we're going to go to insecurity, creating false stories about ourselves. But the third place that many of us go is we go to narratives when we get triggered. And that's where we create false stories about others. And this is what's happening in our world today. A number of years ago, I was speaking at a, a massive youth conference in the state of Indiana. And I'm walking from a hotel to this auditorium. There's thousands of kids at this event, high school students. And as I'm walking there, I see two massive clusters of students. And they are taunting one another. And all of a sudden, all of these leaders are gone because they're in a leader meeting. And I'm walking up and I think I'm going to have to try and break up a brawl. And I'm getting closer and closer and closer to what's going on. And this is what I hear. One group of students are like this. Boiler up. Boiler up. And you know what I think? There's actually something called Purdue fans in the wild. I've never seen this before. I mean, I've seen Michigan fans. I've never seen Purdue fans. And then on the other side, I see these other kids going, Ah, you! Are you? And I'm like, Indiana fans, I got two six and six teams fighting one another. This is crazy. And so what happens? They open the doors to the auditorium, to the youth conference. Music begins to play. Worship song is done. And then one kid starts screaming at Indiana University fans. And Indiana University fans begin taunting the Purdue fans in between worship. And I'm sitting here going, what is going on? And I feel almost the Spirit of God say, you got to do something about this. Which I was like, you got to do something about this. <laughs> but I feel like God says, I need you to teach something about this. So I get up on stage. I already had a message planned. I said, okay, okay, here's what we're going to do. If you're a Purdue fan, I want you to come up on stage. Like 50% of the room comes up on stage. If you're, if you're an Indiana fan, I want you to come up on stage. 49.9% of the rest of the room comes up on stage. There's like two Butler fans, 
two Notre Dame fans, they need Jesus, and then one kid from my IUPUI. Uh, and so I have them up on stage. I'm like, here's what I want you to do. I want you to choose one kid, one kid, one kid to represent your profound institution. One kid comes forward for Purdue, one kid comes forward for Indiana, 16-year-old kid for Purdue. I say, tell me why your school is so great. Because I'll tell you, because we develop quarterbacks. Bob Greasy, which I was impressed, that's the 70s reference. Drew Brees and Kyle Orton. And as a Chicago Bears fan, I was like, Kyle Orton's a bit of a stretch, but I hear you. I hear you. I, I go to an Indiana fan. I say, Indiana guy, give me one reason why your school's so great. It's like Indiana basketball, Assembly Hall. Have you ever seen our candy cane striped warm-up pants? We're amazing. Calvert Chaney, Isaiah Thomas, Steve Alford. I'm like, you also had a coach who choked a player, but that's another story. And I'm sitting there going, okay, 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 okay. I understand why you love your school. Here's what I need you to do. I need you now to tell me, Purdue kid, why you love Indiana and something that's good about it. No joke, 16-year-old kid gets quiet. And he starts to tear up. And I'm like, buddy, buddy, hey, hey, man, hey, it's okay. Just one thing, because you don't understand. Our parents struggled with addiction, and they were out pretty early, so I was raised by my grandparents. My granddad is everything to me. He taught me about Jesus. I, if I want to be like anybody, I want to be like him. But then he got cancer. Can we live outside West Lafayette? He started going to the hospital. We had people coming from the church to pray. But there's nothing they could do. And one of the doctors came in and said, hey, we can't do anything more for you. The only thing that we can recommend is that you go to Indiana University to their cancer hospital. The wisdom there, it might help. And so my granddad went there, our church kept praying, and God used those doctors, God heard our prayers, and God did a miraculous work, and I, I can't believe this, but, but my granddad is still here, and I can't imagine my life without him. A tender and beautiful moment. What do all the IU kids start to do? They start walking all proud, going, that's right, we save lives. And I'm sitting here going, you guys just missed an entire moment. I look at this kid from Indiana, I said, hey, hey, tell me one thing about Purdue. And no joke, this 18-year-old kid from Indiana, someone from Purdue yells out, where are you going to school next year? And the kid looks down and says, I've always wanted to be an engineer. Purdue has the best engineering program in the state of Indiana. They've offered me a full-ride scholarship, so I'm taking my talents to West Lafayette. And all of the Purdue fans are like, welcome to our side. Here's what I need you to understand. In this moment, I realized something. We can get so connected to our echo chamber and our point of view, and we, if we are not careful, struggle to see the image of God. And when we get triggered, it's easier to create narratives, false stories about other people. They're all like that. Every single one of them. They're all bad. They're, they're, they're terrible. They always do that. And instead of seeing what could potentially unite us, we only see what will divide us. And when we put that out there, it only furthers the divide. And I watched this. 
And this is what talk radio and Twitter and social media are making millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars doing going, let's trigger them and let's watch them create false narratives. And all of it, we find ourselves avoiding getting after the thing beneath the thing. But the healthiest people that I've ever been around the kind of people that I believe are actually a part of Christ Church Oakbrook are the people who go to the fourth place, which is understanding grace. And grace, not the kind of grace that just gets you into heaven, but John Wesley and his theology believed that there were three stages of grace. And the third stage of grace he referred to as sanctifying grace. And this was the grace that is this ongoing process filled with the Spirit's power to make you whole, holy, and spiritually healthy. And friends, this is what God wants to do. God doesn't want you to go through this world filled with all of these potholes that can quickly become sinkholes that leave collateral damage in the marketplace, in the church, in your family, with every relationship, because I've never met anyone who's ever looked at me and said, Steve, today's the day. Today's the day for what? Today's the day I'm going to train wreck my life. Today's the day I'm going to self-sabotage all the good that God has put before me. But somehow, we drift. And there is this good, good father who's saying, I have offered you grace, the grace that longs to make you whole, holy, and spiritually healthy. Have you ever seen Billy Graham's wife's tombstone? Ruth Bell Graham, it says the date that she was born, the date she passed, and then underneath it, it says construction completed, thanks for your patience, which is genius. Because what is she saying on her tombstone? I'm in process. I'm under construction. And I'm letting more and more of God's goodness and peace and grace go after all the potholes in my story so that they don't become sinkholes, so that I can be whole and holy and spiritually healthy on behalf of my family for the sake of Christ, for the sake of the church, for the sake of the world. And for some of us, some of us, you hear me say this though, and your theology says, that sounds a lot like works. But Dallas Willard, a mentor from afar who I had the chance to spend some time with, used to always say, grace is opposed to earning, but grace is never opposed to effort. And it requires effort to look at the with courageous curiosity when somebody triggers you, when something happens, when somebody gets close to your pothole, for you to no longer say, I do not understand what I do, but to get curious, why do I want to go here? Or why do I start to think this about myself here? Or why do I think about others like this here? And when we can begin to get curious and say, man, that is just broken. That is me. That's not the way God sees me or God sees humanity. That's when we can begin to lean in and watch what God wants to do. Friends, can I just ask you a couple of questions? 
And this is going to be your homework. And I wish I could actually be at your home and I wish I could follow you for a day. I wish I could just watch you and go and ask you this question. But here's the first question. What triggers you? What triggers you? And think about it for like this. What is the emotion or the feeling underneath that? Ah, man. I got triggered because I was disappointed. I got triggered because I was sad. I got triggered because someone made me feel small. I got triggered. I got triggered because of this. And if you lean in, knowing that Christ and the Spirit and God's love is with you and for you, I guarantee you there's a moment in your story that that is where it began. And every time you react, you are just reenacting the past. And any time we get hysterical, my counselor says, it's probably because it's historical. And it requires us to get curious. So what triggers you? And number two, where do you go? Where do you go when you get triggered? What hideouts do you go after? to escape. Socially acceptable, socially unacceptable, but Tim Keller, great pastor, would say all of the places we go other than God are called counterfeits. Or in biblical language, idols. Where do you go in insecurity? What's the lie that you have chosen to replay again and again and again that's not true and not true about how God sees you? And when you're triggered, What's the storyline you can create about that person in your family? Or that neighbor? Or that person who has a different faith story or faith background? Or that Packers fan? But that's okay because they're Packers fans. Or that person who comes from a different political viewpoint. If we don't get aware of this, all of a sudden we're going to lose our witness. And what if in those moments you can identify what triggers you and where you go as a hideout, an insecurity, and a narrative, and what if you could just begin to say, God, sign me up. I want to do the work for your sanctifying grace to make me whole, holy, and spiritually healthy. God, fill in my potholes so they do not become sinkholes. And when a church can do that, then the decisions that they make, the things that they think about, the words that come out of their mouth, and what is happening in their heart is more and more in line with the way of Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let's pray and we'll continue. God, thank you. Thank you for this amazing church. And God, I'm just praying right now that we would be people, no matter where our ages, no matter what experience we've had, better and worse, that we would be people who are relentless to go after our potholes. We've seen in our day too many leaders, those potholes have become sinkholes that have affected so many more. Let us have the courage to identify what triggers us and where we go. My God, I just pray as the song is sung over us that we would choose Grace upon grace upon grace every single time. And all God's people said, amen.